Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you are joining us today. This is part two on the subject of why I believe and why I trust the Bible. And we're actually talking about one of the names of Jesus, and that name is Logos. That title that is used of Jesus is really not used a lot in the Bible. It's only found seven times in the Bible. But don't think that it's not important because it's not used a lot. It is because of the depth and the significance of that word that we need to really show it some respect and some reverence, okay? Some words are just far too significant and they're too precious to be worn out with continued use. But today I want to share with you, and this is part two of the message, so if you didn't get part number one, you can listen to yesterday's broadcast. And so I'm just going to summarize what that word logos means. The word logos means to be uttered by a living voice. So there's reverence to this name that was given to Jesus because it expresses the very mind and the very heart of God. So I guess you could say that when Jesus became flesh, he did it so that he could become logos by uttering the very heart of God, by giving God's mind through revelation by his word. And now when you think about that, we understand things because of words, right? The word logic has a very close correlation with the word logos. We could say, in the beginning was logic, and logic was with God. One of the reasons that I'm a follower of Christ is because it's very logical. And so when Jesus came, he says, I am flesh. John says, the word came and dwelt among us. As we think about why we should trust the Bible, and using that word logos, it's a personal reference to God. All things were made through him, and in him was light, and the life was the life of men. All things pulled together by his authority. Christ brings all things into order. And so we trust the Word of God because it is able to pull things together. It is the Logos of our lives. The Logos is always everlasting. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God and was with God in the beginning. So that was our first point. Christians must respond and understand that there's power in the Word of God. The power is not in and of ourselves. That's why there's so many countries that have outlawed the Word of God or attempted to outlaw the Word of God because of the power of the Word. So we learned yesterday that the word logos is always everlasting, never changing. We learned secondly that the Word of God is also creating, always creating. Through Him, all things were made, and without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And so we go back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earths. So earth is able to reproduce itself. Humans are able to reproduce themselves. Animals reproduce themselves, all going back to the beginning, how God created us. As a matter of fact, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, to procreate because they were created in the image of God and God creates all things. And so we spent a lot of time talking about that yesterday, that God created all things. You see, the power and the authority of God's word, he spoke all things into existence. 
Now, I told you yesterday I was going to talk to you briefly about the Scopes trial that some have informally called this the Scopes monkey trial. It was a a landmark American legal case going back to 1925 in which a high school teacher, John Scopes, was accused of violating Tennessee's Butler Act, which made it unlawful to teach evolution in any state-funded school. Well, Scopes was found guilty. The verdict was overturned on a technicality, and so he went free. Now, the trial drew a lot of intense national publicity. National reporters flocked to this small little town of Dayton, Tennessee. As a matter of fact, this was the first trial that was actually aired on radio way back in 1925. In this little small town of Dayton, Tennessee, and they are there, and, and each side had their own attorneys representing them. So William Jennings Bryan, who ran for president three times, three-time candidate for the Democrats, argued for the prosecution. Well, Clarence Darrow, the famed defense attorney, spoke for Scopes. The trial was set, and the consensus was that we should not allow evolution to be taught in the school. And so fundamentalists got on one hand, and then we had the others on the other side, and they went back and forth. And uh, anyway, we ended up winning Scopes' trial, but it was called Scopes' monkey trial because it didn't go well, even though we won the case as Christians believing that creation should be taught in schools. So when we look at that, on the witness stand on day seven of the Scopes' trial, uh, this would be July 20th, 1925, Mr. Byron said, the prosecuting attorney says, Your Honor, I think we can shorten this testimony. He said, the only purpose of Mr. Darrow has is to slur at the Bible, but I will answer his question. I will answer it all at once. I have no objection in the world. I want the world to know that this man who does not believe in God is trying to use this court in Tennessee. Well, even though that was a good point, it wasn't well received, okay? So we can talk more and more about this, but the bottom line is, is that the Scopes trial was an attempt to stop God's word from being proclaimed and to stop the teaching of creation. And I think it in some ways backfired, but we have seen the effects of this throughout the last almost 100 years uh, as we see what has happened within our school system. But I want to remind you that God is always creating. He created us in the image of God. You can choose to believe in the theory of evolution, or you can believe in the creation account, an account by an intelligent design. But I want you to know, when you look at that whole subject, there are some things that are really basic to our understanding that I think will help shed light into the belief that we were created by God, by an intelligent being. Because when you see anything that is created, you know that somebody put it together. Nothing haphazardly comes together into order. Things tend to go naturally by chaos, but supernaturally by order. God has ordered us in such a way that we like order. And when we create something, there's got to be a rhyme or reason to it, and it follows certain laws, whether it be laws of gravity or whether it be laws of aerodynamics when it comes to flying, there are certain laws that we follow. When we create things, we create within those laws. So we've learned so far that the word is everlasting. 
the Word is always creating. And number three, the Word is always living. That is its unending. Psalm 119.107 says, I have suffered much, preserve my life. And then David says, according to your word. In the New Testament, Paul writes, the word of God is alive and it's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Have you ever wondered why some people are very resistant to the word? You ever wonder why the Ten Commandments were taken off the walls of our school? Why prayer, it was kicked out of our schools back in the 1960s? Because the Word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, its joints and its marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is writing, and he says, you know, God has humbled us causing us to be hungry, then feeding us with manna. Neither you nor your ancestors knew how to take care of this problem, but God provided this bread alone. And then he takes it to the next step. He says, now I want you to teach your children that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Moses was saying to his people, listen, God has given us manna. The same God who feeds us physically knows that we can't just live on physical bread alone, but we live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Boxer Rebellion in China was a rebellion back in 1900. There was a Chinese secret organization called the Society of the Righteous, and the Harmonious Fist led to an uprising in northern China. And they were up against the spread of the Western and the the Japanese influence there. And the rebels referred to by Westerners as boxers because they performed these physical exercises and, and they believed by being in such great shape that they would be able to even withstand bullets. And uh, that when foreigners came in, that these Chinese Christians would be destroyed. But the Boxer Rebellion was from June to August. And the boxers came in and they seized a district of China's capital city. And then all of a sudden, the international forces came in and American troops subdued this uprising. By the terms of the Boxer Protocol, which officially ended the rebellion in 1901, China agreed to pay more than $330 million in reparations. So the Boxer Rebellion was basically a rebellion against the word. Some type of opposition was manifested during the Boxer Rebellion in China. There was a little girl, and her father had been murdered because of his faith, and so she hid herself, and she confined herself to a cornfield so that she could elude those who were the persecutors. Well, soon she was discovered, and and she was threatened with death if she didn't reveal where the family Bible had been concealed. Testifying that was her daily strength and stay, she refused to tell them, and soon the cruelty ensued and she was martyred. She chose rather to die than to give up that treasured volume. You see, I give that illustration to drive home the point that the Word of God is unending. It's always living. You may kill those who believe it. You may kill those who trust it. 
You may kill those who follow it, but the word of God endures forever. That's why I trust the Bible. It's everlasting, it's always creating, and it's always alive. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and the joints in the marrow. You know, every time I do a funeral, and uh, we are only a couple weeks into January, and I've already done four funerals. It seems like a lot of people die the first part of the year. As I do a funeral, I always give the Word of God, because the Word of God is alive. The Word of God can bring hope to those who are living. It can bring hope to those who have lost a loved one. Uh, The Word of God speaks about three of the most important questions that we ask in life. Question number one is, how did I get here? Well, the Word of God tells me that I was created in the image of God. That's how I got here. God thought about me. God created me. David said, in my mother's womb, God knit me together. God created me. And God created me with his image. God has created within each and every one of us this desire to know him. I think it was Vance Havner who says, God created this God-shaped void in the hearts of everybody. So I was created in the image of God. That's how I got here. Question number two, what in the world am I supposed to do while I'm here? What is the purpose of my life? Have you ever asked that question? I'm sure you have. What am I supposed to do with my life? Uh, Maybe I'll be here 100 years, but what am I supposed to do? Well, Solomon answers that, and he answers the fact that God created us to glorify him. He goes through his whole life trying to figure out uh, why he was here on this earth, and he tries working real hard. You know, I I love hard work, right? What I love most about hard work is when you're done. You get her done, and you say, look at what I've accomplished. There's a great sense of that feeling of accomplishment. Solomon says, you know, I I did that, and I I worked my fingers to the bone, but it left me empty. And then he tried something else. He says, well, maybe I should try wealth. Maybe the chief end of man is just to get as much money as you can and can as much as you can and and save as much as you want and, and find security in wealth. But he discovered as the wealthiest man alive that that left him empty. He says, vanity of vanities. He says, work hasn't worked. Our wealth has left me empty. He said, well, maybe the chief end of man is to just not even worry about a thing. Just go out and get drunk. Maybe I ought to just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I'm going to die. So he tried investing his life in wine, getting drunk. You know, I've discovered something about anesthetizing your, your life with substance, whether it be drugs or alcohol or some other substance, uh, whenever that uh, high wears off or, or that drunkenness wears off, uh, you get a heavy dose of reality and your problems get worse and don't get better. He says, that was vanity. He said, well, maybe I should try women. And I think as I look at our culture today, we are living in a sexualized culture. And there's so much pornography and there's there's so much illicit behavior sexually in our world today, but it's leaving us empty. It's leaving us broken. Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines and the most beautiful woman at his disposal, and it left him feeling empty. He tried one thing after another thing, but it always left 
him empty. Uh, maybe you're listening to me today, and that's where you are. Uh, you're always trying different things and saying, well, maybe if I get a new job, maybe if I get a, a new wife or a new spouse, or or maybe if I get a, a new opportunity, or if I move, or, and you're trying thing after thing after thing, a new entertainment, a new high, a new, a new drug. You're thinking these things will help, but it's leaving you empty. Solomon concludes the matter. After trying anything, uh, everything under the sun, and he says, this is the chief end of man. Glorify God, obey his commandments, and you will enjoy life. That is our purpose in life, to glorify God. The word of God teaches us how to glorify the Lord. The word of God teaches us why we should glorify the word. The word is everlasting. The word is creating. The word is always living, and the word is always revealing. The psalmist says, your word is a lamp firmly planted. It is a light unto my path. It unfolds your words and it gives me light. It gives me understanding. You see, it uncovers, it illuminates. Is the word of God the only way God reveals your sin condition? Many resent that. But you know the word of God, most importantly, tells you what is going to happen to your soul when you die. It seems to me that many want to reject the Bible because they claim that is too judging, but there is not another book that reveals how a person can go to heaven. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the law. You see, the more you follow the light, the more light you have. Secret things become revealed. And as they become revealed, we can pass them on to our children. You see, the purpose for inspiration is not just knowledge. Too many Christians want to know what's happening, and too few are living out their knowledge in obedience. Those who oppose liberty, I'm talking about spiritual liberty, religious liberty, civil liberty, they will suppress or attempt to suppress the God-inspired scriptures for they consider them dangerous. To the believer, however, it remains the beloved handbook to heaven. Tim Keller said that he would never forget the story about one of his mentors, a college professor by the name of Dr. Addison Leach. Two young women at the college were both bright and and their respective parents wanted them to get master's degrees and to go on in their careers. But instead, they both became Christians. Both decided that they were going to become missionaries. Other parents had a fit. One of the mothers called Dr. Leach, thinking it was Dr. Leach, who was one of the reasons why the girls had become, in their mother's words, religious fanatics, rather than pursuing the course they had hoped, getting a career and having security but instead they're going to go wildly off into the blue. The mother said, we wanted our daughter to get a master's degree, start a career, and get something in the bank so that she could have some security. Well, Dr. Leach responded, please let me remind you of something. We're all on a little ball of rock called Earth. And we're spinning along through space, 
at zillions of miles per hour. Even if we don't run into anything, eventually, we're all going to die. Which means that under every single one of us, there's a trap door that's going to open one day, and we're all going to fall off this ball of rock. And underneath will either be the everlasting arms of God or absolutely nothing. So maybe we can get a master's degree to get some security, but the biggest savings account in the world cannot stop cancer. It can't stop accidents and traffic. It cannot stop broken hearts. It can't give you anything. Any of the things that only God can give you. He's the only significance that you can have. He's the only love that you can get and that you can't lose. The unconditional love of the Lord. Oh, I want you to know, my friends, that God's Word is so powerful and is such a blessing to our lives. Sometimes it gives us warnings. Sometimes it gives us direction on how we ought to live our lives. I want you to know that God's Word will set you free. And when you are set free by the Word of God, you are free indeed. In my small group, and I would encourage everyone to be involved in a small group somewhere where you're with other believers and you're studying the Word of God, we began a study on the book of Revelation. And as we look at the book of Revelation, it begins by giving a letter to the seven churches. And I know we just have a few minutes left in our broadcast today, but I wanted to share with you just a couple of these uh, reminders that is given to us by John the Revelator as he's exiled out in the Isle of Patmos. We learn that he gives a letter of warning, and he begins by talking to the seven churches. First, he sends a letter out to the church of Ephesus and to Smyrna. And you look at the city of Ephesus, it's a beautiful city located on the western coast of, of Asia Minor. And he says, you have left your first love. Oh, maybe you're listening to me today, and you've left your first love. It's not that you've lost it, you've walked away from it. Oh, there's a challenge from God's Word that you can come back into the uh, fold because if you don't, then your lampstand will be removed. Your opportunity to bless others will be removed. And then there's another letter that he wrote, and it was to the believers at Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was a wealthy port city, and it was located about 40 miles north of Ephesus. And he says, you know, the problem with this church is that you are starting to compromise your faith. You enjoy living in a prosperous society, but you got caught up in the pleasures of this society. And now you have been tolerating the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And that was an abominable faith. And, and so maybe today you have been caught up in the comforts of our world and you've allowed false doctrine to begin to creep into your life. And then John talks about the letter to Pergamos and, and Thyatira. And he talks about these churches and he, and he reminds them that they have gone back on their word. Uh, they didn't do what they promised they were going to do. And so he's reminding them that you have allowed false doctrine to come in and that your house needs to be cleaned. And to the church of Thyatira, this church about 45 miles east of Pergamos, he says, you have allowed false leadership to come in and you have allowed false worship to take place. And then he gives a letter 
to the Philadelphia believers in, in the church of Sardis. And as we look at this particular church, we discover that they were a good church and that they had not soiled themselves or their clothes. But they thought they were going to be alive, but they were really dead. In other words, they lost their zeal for serving the Lord. I pray that God's word will encourage you to have the the zeal that you need, not only to live out God's word, but to share God's word wherever you go. And in the church of Philadelphia, this is a church that uh, was needing an awakening, and they were kind of going through, and they were kind of just living a life where they they needed to not get hung up uh, and, and gossip, but to take advantage of the open door that God had for them. And in the last church, the church of Laodicea, this is the church that is lukewarm. Maybe today you've become not on fire, not cold. You're just kind of haphazard. You're lukewarm. Here we discover that God will, will spew you out of his mouth because of your lukewarmness. Oh, can I pray for you today? Lord, help us not to be half-hearted. Help us to be fully in, fully serving you. And we're going to give you the praise and the glory that is due your name. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ there is always hope for your heart.